Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 6. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention and let me also say good evening. I greet you in the name of the Lord. Welcome you on this Lord's Day, Sabbath, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. This is God's holy and inspired word, Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 6. Oh, actually, we'll start at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's holy inspired word. Brothers and sisters, the last time that we gathered on the Lord's Day, we clarified, if you remember, we clarified the mysterious identity of the Nephilim. Lord willing, uh, you were able to walk away from that sermon concluding that the Nephilim were not as mysterious maybe as you had once believed. We learned that they were not a hybrid race of giants produced through the angelic intermarriage of humans and angels, but rather they were wicked warriors known for their tyranny, their ferocity. Were they giants? Possibly. But as we said last week, their size is not the point. The wickedness of man is the point of those people, right? And this led us to our second point, the depravity of man. We learned that because of Adam's sin, we've all become corrupted by sin. Romans 5:12 Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned we learn that man is corrupted in his mind man is corrupted in his will in his desires but we also learn that man is not as bad as he could be and yet there is not one part of man's being that has not been touched by this sin that there is not one good thing that we can do to be justified in the sight of God because we are, at the very core of our being, sinful. There is no good deed that, can, that we can do to earn ourselves an innocent standing before God, a righteous standing before God. All of our good and right deeds are, as we said last week, but splendid sins in the sight of God. None are acceptable. None are acceptable for our redemption. And yet, in the midst of this bad news, and just in case I was not clear last week, just in case you missed it, or may have walked away misunderstanding depravity, depravity is not good news. Are we all clear there? Depravity is not good news. That we have rebelled against God, that we have broken covenant with our loving creator is not good news. But it is, it is ironic that from this bad news that we are totally depraved, that our entire beings are corrupted, that we can do nothing to save ourselves. From this bad news flows the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has done for us that which we could never achieve and do for ourselves. That he has achieved and accomplished perfect obedience to the righteous requirements of God's law. He has lived the life, again, that we could never live. He has died in the place of sinners. He chose before the foundation of the world. And he has risen from the dead. 
He is not dead. As uh, Pastor Zay said this morning in our Narrow Road sermon, the gospel is not the gospel without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ is not raised, and we are still in our sins. And Christ did raise. And as he did raise, he conquers sin, death, and the grave. And now, brothers and sisters, we come tonight to yet another difficult text in the book of Genesis. And you may, uh, you may feel as I am feeling. We are never going to get through the book of Genesis. We will get through the book of Genesis. But there are very important things that we must consider as we tread along. So let us once again read our text. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And listen to this. And the Lord regretted. That he made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, at first glance, this passage is quite simple. The Lord saw the appalling sin of man. The Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. Because of man's sin and God's displeasure with sin, God determined to execute judgment on all of creation. The worst judgment the world had ever seen prior to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, when we examine the text with a closer eye, it's not that simple. Why? Because we are confronted with language about God that raises a number of important questions that are worthy of our consideration this evening. I hope that your eye caught them. They are this. They are these. The Lord regretted. The Lord was grieved to his heart. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. Did your eyes catch those things? Those are the, that, that is the unique language in the text. The Lord regretted or repented, as the King James Version may say. The Lord was grieved to his heart. The only place in all of Scripture that you see that. And the Lord was sorry that he made man. Now, brothers and sisters, how can God regret anything? Is it possible for God to be so moved by the actions of man, the sinful actions of man, that he would be shattered in pieces in his heart, grieved to his heart? Is there anything that God has done that he is sorry for? Is God saying in this passage, what a mistake I have made. I did not see this outcome of my creation. I didn't see this coming. I wish I would have never made man. I regret that act. And now I must fix it with judgment. Is that what God is saying? Brothers and sisters, what is God intending to teach us about himself in this passage? Tonight, we are going to, with the help of God, we are going to cast into deep waters. And again, we will need God's help 
to, to brave through the depths of the being of God. And I have just three points for you this evening. Number one, very important point. It will, it will guide us through the rest of these points. Number one, the creator creature distinction. Number one, the creator creature distinctive or distinction. Verse six again. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, again, what is God trying to communicate to us? Let me ask you this. When we first open up the scriptures, God's word, what is the very first thing that God communicates to us when we open up his holy and inspired word? What is the very first thing? Genesis chapter one and verse one. God communicates to us this in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first thing that God reveals to us, his creation, is that there is a fundamental distinction between the creator and his creation. The very first words of God's revelation confront his creation with the fact that we are created. And we are not the creator. Amen. That he is God. And that we are not God. And brothers and sisters, it is this distinction between the creator, God, and the creature, you and I, and all creation, that we must always keep at the forefront of our minds when we are treading through God's word and attempting to apprehend its meaning, especially when we are confronted with difficult texts like the one tonight. At every step of the way, in God's word, God is reminding his creatures of of this fact. When God called Moses from the burning bush... He highlighted the vast difference between creation and its creator. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. God said his name is his being is I am who I am. What does that mean? It means God is all that he is. Well, it's got to be more complex than that, right? That doesn't make any sense. What do you mean by you are who you are? What does it mean, I am that I am? It means God is simple. God is not complex. You are complex. I am complex. God is simple. What does that mean that God is simple? Nothing can be added to God. Nothing can be taken away from God. God is simple. And we may say, well, well, yes, of course. Of course God is. Nothing can be added to God. Nothing can be taken away from God. But when we say things like, God weeps. When we say things like, God's heart is breaking when you make a sin, when you commit a sin. When we say things like, God is suffering when we suffer. Then we deny 
that nothing can be added to God or taken away from God. We are actually saying the opposite, that God can be sorrowful, that we can add sorrowful emotions to God, that, that if we sin, we can take away joyful emotions from God. Do you see that? That, that God has emotions or passions, that God is, is not simple but complex like you and I. We are saying that there is no distinction between the creator and the creature. What we are saying is that God is like us. You get that? If we believe that that God is the I am that he says he is. That he is all that he is all at once, that he is simple. Listen, that he's not made up of multiple parts. That he's not like creation. Then we must deny the idea that we can bring about any change upon God. With our sinfulness. The Bible declares God is spirit in John 4, 24. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. He does not have a body. He's not subject to the existence of, of creation like his creatures, like humans. He, he doesn't know uh, existence the way you and I know existence. Why? Because he's the creator. He's not the creature. And you must carry that through your mind all throughout the scriptures when you're studying, when you're reading, when you're trying to understand. So then, here's an important question. How then are we to understand passages like Genesis when the Bible does say God is repenting? God is regretting. God is experiencing grief. Now listen, brothers and sisters. We must understand that passages that tell us about God's being, listen, and his nature take priority over passages that describe God's actions. Did you hear that? Passages that speak about God's being and God's nature take priority over passages that speak about God's actions. This is what's called proper hermeneutics. Brother, can we turn the air down a little bit, please? Thank you. Passages that, that tell us, listen to this, God is not a man. Or that God is not like a man. Take control or priority over the passages that describe God with creaturely descriptions. Such as his being or such as being physical or emotional. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Shake your head if you if. if yeah, OK, let me let me say that again. Passages that tell us God is not a man. Passages that tell us God is not like a man. They control and take priority over passages that, passages that describe God like a man with creaturely descriptions. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Such as being physical, hands, eyes, ears, whatever else. And also being emotional, grieving, regretting. Why? Because scripture is upholding the distinction between the creator and the creature. If we were to take passages like 1 Samuel, which we'll read in a moment, where on the one hand, God regrets. And then on the other hand, he is not a man that he should regret. Which one takes priority? Well, ask yourself this. Is there a distinction between the creator and his creation? Yes, there is. Is God a man? No, he's not. God is not a man. Therefore, certain things that are true about man cannot be true about God. 
passages that describe God's being control passages that describe God in human language or experiences. We know this well. Let me give you an example. We use phrases like this all the time. I was dying laughing. Were you actually laughing so hard that you almost died? No. But you are communicating something about your laugh, that you had a good, hard laugh, right? When you go out to eat at the Golden Corral. You might say we pigged out. Are you actually pigs? No, but you are communicating something that we can understand in in that pigs eat in an unruly manner. And so did you at that time. Right. Scripture uses physical features, emotional experiences of mankind in order to teach us about God. But at the same time, we must not equate the language used to describe God with the being of God himself. He is not a man. He is God. So what is scripture doing? Scripture, the Lord, is accommodating himself. You know what accommodating mean, means? He, he, is, he is lisping, as it were. He, he, is, he is speaking to us in our language, according to our understanding, and yet still we fail to understand. Hugh Benning said, when you hear of these terms in scripture, oh, beware, lest you conceive that God be like one of you. One of the mistakes that we make when reading texts like the one that is before us today is that we put ourselves on the same level of, of, as God and make an automatic one-to-one connection between us and God, that we are just like him. Or, or better yet, that he is just like us. Or we're not better yet, worse yet, right? Meaning that if we see that God regretted or if we see that, that God was grieved, we tend to think that God regretted and is grieving the way you and I regret and grieve and grieve. And in doing so, we eliminate the distinction between the creator and the creature. Between you and God. And why do we do this? We either do this because we are ignorant of how God accommodates himself to his creatures. Or because we sinfully want to fashion a God who is just like us. We want to create a God. Who cries like us, who regrets like us, who is sorrowful like us. And and it all sums up to us wanting to worship ourselves rather than God. Because we want so badly to be for God to be just like us. To think like we think, to reason like we reason, to compromise like we compromise. All so that we can be comfortable with ourselves and our sin. Brothers and sisters, there is a vast chasm between the creator and the creature. And it is this that we must carry along with us in order to understand all of scripture and especially our next point. Number two, the regret, the grief, and divine impassibility. Not the regret. Let's just make it this point. Regret, grief, and divine impassibility. Not the regret, not the regret, not the grief, but listen, regret, grief, divine impassibility. Got it? Regret, grief, divine impassibility. Let's read our verses again. Verse six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. 
man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, and, and this point is going to sound much like the first point, but more drawn out. As we read this passage, we are confronted with the idea that God could possibly regret his plans. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, the Lord saw all that he had made and declared that all, including man, was very good. And now it would appear that God is completely disappointed in what he's done. That that scripture says that he regretted making man on the earth, that, that he is sorry that he made man. And to take this a step further, God's heart is cut to the core because of man's sin. We must now ask this. Is God passable? Is God capable of suffering? Because it seems that that is what scripture is communicating, right? Is God susceptible to experiencing changes of emotions or passions within his being? Listen to this. A man wrote a book about the death of his son who died in a hiking accident and stated this about God. God is not not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. Every act of evil extracts a tear from from God. Every plumb into anguish, a sob from God. God's work to release himself from his suffering is his work to deliver the world from its agony. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Anything wrong with what you just heard? He's not only the the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. That every act of evil extracts a tear from God. Every plumb into anguish, a sob from God. And he says the work, God's work to release himself from his suffering is his work to deliver the world from its agony. Think about that statement. Is God capable of that kind of suffering? Is God susceptible to experiencing the the emotions and passions that you and I experience on a daily basis? Does God cry when you cry as the Wyman sang back in the day? Before you answer that question, ask yourself this. Am I upholding the creator-creature distinction? Ask yourself if you are holding up what scripture holds up. Don't allow yourself to give an emotional response. And and, and listen, listen to this. That is what most evangelicals of this world believe and think concerning God. Of course, God hurts when I hurt. Of course, God suffers and cries when I cry. Of course, God sobs when something tragic happens. It doesn't please God. And why do we believe this? Because we are sinful. We want God to be just like us. Imagine if God cried every time something terrible happens. Then God is always crying. It should be figuratively figuratively speaking. I sound like figuratively speaking. It should be raining all the time then. 
There is not one day that something negative or tragic does not take place. So then our God is constantly in a state of, of depression and sorrow. Brothers and sisters, God is not like us. We are subjected to change of emotions. We are subjected to, to hurting when others hurt. We are subjected to experiencing a wide range of emotions. We are complex beings. We are passable beings. But God, God is simple. God is impassable. God does not experience emotional changes either from within or affected by his relationship to the creation. This is a scriptural truth, and it is very important as a part of our system of theology. Our confession states this in, second, in our second paragraph of the first, second paragraph, second, second chapter, paragraph one of our confession of God and the Holy Trinity. We read, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit invisible, without body, parts, or passions. So then, what do we do with the many passages of Scripture, like the one that we have before us this evening, that describe God in the language of human experience and human emotions? What do we do with passages like Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 7? Through eight. You know what it says? Remember and do not forget how the Lord provoked, how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked, listen to this, you provoked the Lord to wrath. Listen to this. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Or what do you do with 1 Samuel 15, 11? God saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It would appear based upon those passages and many like them that God does experience regret. That he does have grief in his heart. That God is sorry. That he repents with sorrow. That God does react with wrath when he is provoked. Is all of that true about God? Brothers and sisters, we must be aware that there are many other passages that deny all of those things. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Listen. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he not spoken, and will he not fulfill it? First Samuel, in that same chapter, where God says that I regret, First Samuel fifteen twenty nine, and also the glory of Israel will not lie, or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And Malachi, three six. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And finally, James chapter 1 and verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Listen, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When we read those verses, we can conclude 
that God does not change his mind. That God does not regret. That God does not change even. That there is not even the slightest shift or variation in God. So then what must we do? We appear to have, listen, listen close guys. We appear to have one set of verses that apparently contradict the other set of verses. So then what is God ultimately communicating to us, his creatures? Could you turn this up for me, brother? The point of connection is this. Listen close. The point of connection is not the emotional state of a human that repents, but rather the action that is taken by a holy God. When someone repents, they stop doing what they were doing and they begin to do something else. Repentance is is going in one direction and then changing directions. And we understand this the best way that we can in light of the wickedness of man. Let let me explain that again. The best way that we can understand what God has done. That's better. The best way that we can understand what God has done is in light of the wickedness of man. Does that make sense? Let me explain this. God created man. And then God destroyed man. God made Saul king. And then God removed Saul as king. God threatened Nineveh. And then God removed his sentence. We can call that repentance because there's an analogy between God's action and human actions. With also, without also taking along the baggage of human emotional turmoil that takes place. Does that make sense? When we repent, there's a turmoil that takes place. When we repent, it is because something confronts us. And then we are changed. When we, when we repent, it is because of our sinfulness. It is because of our ignorance. But none of those things apply to God. We turn from sin to righteousness. We encounter a problem. We regret a decision. We redo or start over and do something else. And we sometimes make good decisions with the best hopes. We take jobs. We make transitions into new homes, new cities. And all, and all the time, all the while hoping that all things will turn out well. But we don't know the future. We, we don't know if the decisions that we are making will ultimately end up being the best decision after all. And when we fail to make the best decisions, no one is at fault. We feel bad for the money that we've spent and lost, for the time that we've spent and lost, but we are humans. We live, we learn, we grow from those experiences. Is that what is happening to God? Did God make an honest mistake in creating man? One that he has not, one that he has learned from and a mistake that he will never make again. Is God learning? Is God going through a process of growth and change? Is there a difference between the creator and his creation? Yes, there is. God is, is never moved by sinful motives. He is holy in all of his ways. God knows the beginning from the end. God is not like us. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass and he accomplishes all of his holy will. God knew that there would be a fall. 
The fall did not take God by surprise. God knew that there would be a judgment. It did not cause any agony in the heart of God. God knew that he would judge mankind. It was not a reaction to the sinfulness of man. It was decreed from eternity past. So can a simple God who has decreed all things, a simple God who cannot be hindered, can that God repent or regret? No. Listen, not in the same sense that a creature repents repents or regrets. God decrees all things from all eternity. God decreed to create man, to destroy man, to make Saul king, to remove Saul as king, etc., etc., And all of those experiences, no, all of those decrees are described for us in human language. Human language and understanding, though, even still, even though it is in language that we know, it still cannot contain God. Revelation may be accommodated to our capacities. It's not false. But we can no more contain God in our language language than we can place the ocean into a bottle of water. The the, The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Our minds and our language will never be able to wrap themselves around God and fully express his entire being. Does that mean that when we talk about God or when the scriptures talk about God and speak to us, that it is communicating something false to us? Not at all. It simply means that we have to understand that we are using creaturely language to describe an infinite and perfect God. A God who Moses was told no one can see him and live. Scripture never speaks falsely to us. It speaks to us in our language. It is accommodated language, not false language. And we need to follow Scripture's lead. We need to follow its own method of interpretation. James Usher says, Thus we speak as well as we can, yet in, unbro- yet in a broken and imperfect manner to God. As little children speak to their nurses, and Almighty God speak in a broken and imperfect language to us again. For we are... For for our weakness and our understanding's sake. God speaks to us for our weakness and understanding's sake. For if the nurse should speak perfectly to the child, as she should, as she could to one of greater capacity, the child would not understand her. So if God should speak to us as he could, and according to his own nature, we, were, we would never be able to understand him nor conceive his meaning. Meaning this, if God were to speak to us, In his language, we would not understand a single word. So God accommodates to our language and speaks to us in a way that we can understand. And yet we still fail to understand. God's essential glory and infinite perfection are too much for his his creatures to comprehend. We cannot. We cannot comprehend him. We cannot, as been said so often, we cannot reach our arms around the great tree that is God. But we can apprehend him. We can put our hands on the tree and know it truly. Can you fathom God? Can you fathom that God is not limited by time? 
Can you fathom that God is eternal? Can you fathom that he has created time and also transcends time? Can you fathom that God is absolutely holy and perfect? Everything that God has done, is doing, and will do in time is the fulfillment or the outworkings of his decree. God's decree is simple, just as God is simple. God's decree has one cause with unfathomable multitude of effects. So then, if we ascribe things like emotion to God, or reactions like repenting, relenting, regretting, or being provoked to wrath, we must not understand those states of being, being brought about through some successive existence of God, that God is going through different changes as we are. Rather, they are the outworking of his eternal and singular decree. Brothers and sisters, you should also not want a God who's like you. I don't want a God who is emotional like me. I don't want a God who's complex like me. I don't want a God who is often moved like I am often moved. Who, who is often unstable as I am often unstable. I don't want a God who is regretful and re- repentful like I am regretful and repentful. I don't want a God who is not all-knowing. I don't want a God who is unknowing. I don't want to worship a God who is still learning. I don't want to worship a God who is ignorant of outcomes. And brothers and sisters, that is not the God of this Bible. And it is most certainly not the God that we worship and serve. God is not trapped in the sufferings of this fallen world. There are no tears in God's eyes. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. He is carrying out all of his purposes for his glory. And he dwells in unbroken bliss. God is independent. We are dependent. God is ase. He exists in and of himself, from himself, and to himself, or, and of himself. Even that which I speak, brothers and sisters, tonight, and it has been choppy, I, I, I apologize. But even that which I speak tonight is too low a description of our creator. Even the words that I use tonight are too low to describe who our God truly is. Third and finally, the meaning of this text. The meaning of this text, uh, verse 6 of chapter 6 again. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So then, after saying all that we have said, and let me also say all that we have said was necessary to understand. So after saying all that we have said, what's the point of this text? We have already established that the point of this passage is not that God regrets. It's not that God repents or that God is sorrowful like one of his creatures, but rather God is unlike his creatures established. In what sense, though, is God not like his creatures, especially in this passage? In that God is holy. And we are not. What's the context? The Lord saw the wickedness of man 
that it was great on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The context is that we are given a glimpse into the tragedy of man's fall from perfection. Man has attempted to climb the holy mountain of God to be like the most high. Man has sinfully attempted to to be God, to exalt himself above God. Man's wickedness is great. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is for self-glorification all the time. And more evidence of this sinfulness, of this desire to glorify self, is found in the way that we have attempted to interpret verse 6 and 7 as being descriptions of a God who was like us. God is not like us. He is holy. He is perfect. He is without sin. And because he is holy, he is just. Therefore, the judgment of God upon man is the outworking of his justice in space and time. The wrath of God is being poured out upon sinful man because of the very fact that God is holy. That's it. That is what we should understand from this passage. We are sinful and deserve punishment. And unless we are saved by God, we too will be swept away with the rest of creation in God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, God has not undergone a change here. We have undergone a change. God has not been moved here. We have been moved by our own sinful desires. God remains holy. Man has fallen from his holiness. Not God. God is condescending to our limitations. God is revealing himself to his creatures in ways that we can understand. But we must not place ourselves at the same level of God. God is repentant. God is grieved. What is the scripture saying? God is holy and will not stand in the sight of sin. And will not let sin be in his presence. Will not let sin go by without it being judged. That's the point of this passage. If we walk away saying God is like us, God repents, God is grieved, God cries, you're missing the holiness of God. It's not about God being like you. It's about you not being like God. That's the point. He's using words like grieved, filled with pain, repent. But they are not to be viewed in the same way that we experience those things. God is not pointing us to his perfection so that we might see that we have a lot in common with God. Rather, this passage is meant to show us that we are nothing like God. That we are sinful beings, that God is holy, God is just, and because he is holy and because he, was, he is just, he will judge sin. The change is in man. The change is not in God. If you're a law keeper, the policeman is your friend. If you're a lawbreaker, the policeman becomes your enemy. Who changed? Law has not changed. We change. We change. And because man has changed, it would appear that God has changed. But the Lord does not change. He is not altered because of man's sin. Man is altered because of man's sin. Man has changed his relationship to God. God is eternal. He is eternally holy. He is just. And that holiness and justice requires judgment of sin. How can it be that he would destroy all of creation? 
Because he hasn't changed. Because he hasn't changed. What did he say in Malachi? Because he does not change. They are not destroyed. It's a profound way of expressing God's hatred of sin and his justice in judgment. All sin appears to God as utterly repulsive. And there is much that we cannot comprehend. But that is the point of this verse. God is holy and we are not. We have fallen from a great height. That's the point. If we walk away from Genesis 6, 6 and say, ah, I don't know, it's just, it's just way too deep. No, it's not. We are just way too sinful. And our problem is that we can read through this verse and be so unmoved by this tragic event in history. That all of creation would be completely wiped out by a flood. You ever paused on reading that? You ever thought deeply about the picture of that? We've heard of hundreds, hundreds of thousands being wiped away in tsunamis. We've heard of hundreds of thousands being killed in earthquakes. And we're shocked by the mass death. And yet, here in the scriptures we read of a judgment that far exceeds anything that we have ever seen in the history of mankind. Not isolated to one part of the earth, but that swept through the entire world. Judgment from God upon the sin of man, and we barely bat an eye. We are too familiar with this. And we are not moved by God's holiness. Every living thing on the land destroyed by God. Everything in the air destroyed by God. We have become so familiar with this text that we treat it as, as, as a children's story. Every single person save those who were in the ark judged by God in water. Can you imagine the sounds from being inside the ark of people banging on that ark to come in? We are meant to learn of these verses, the holiness of God and the tragedy of sin. We are meant to learn from these verses, the total depravity of man and God's righteous judgment upon sinners who deserve punishment from a just and holy God. We are to learn that we are absolutely hopeless in our sin. And yet. There is still a glimmer of hope. Why? Because verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord sovereignly, because of his own good will and pleasure, was merciful to Noah. Was Noah perfect? The Bible says he was a righteous man. But yet he receives grace. Do perfect people need grace? No, we don't. Or, no, they don't. I don't know who we are. Perfect people don't need grace. It is the sinner who needs grace. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord graciously set Noah apart for the preservation of the human race. 
God would use Noah to save humanity. Judgment would come. But there was a way to be saved. Through believing the message of one man. Noah. God displayed for us his holiness, his justice his, in judging sin. And also his grace in providing a way to escape his wrath. Through the message of Noah, a preacher of righteousness, there is a way to escape the judgment of God. Come to the ark. Be saved from the coming wrath of God. And God used Noah, a preacher of righteousness, for 120 years to preach. Come, repent of your sin. Turn to God. Place your faith in the skull-crushing seed of the woman, and you will be saved. 120, 120 years of preaching the same message. And Noah is a type of Christ. In that, in Christ, we also can escape the judgment of God if we place our faith in Christ alone. God has not changed. He is holy and will always be. He is just and will always be. And man will be judged for his sin. But there is a way to escape the coming wrath. If we would place our faith in the deliverer. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.